Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast? Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm a little somber, as you can tell. It saddens me to have to put out a episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast under these sort of situations. Sadly, I guess with the type of business we're in, we kind of have to expect this sort of thing to happen. Um, Jeff is not with us tonight. He's still out in Texas. This is a off-the-cuff, real quick sort of thing I felt was necessary to be done because, well, um, one of our listeners reached out to me today. Kristoff, uh, thank you so much for reaching out. Kristoff helped me kind of organize this interview we did back on episode 55 going back some time um for those of you who've been a long time listener of this podcast um episode 55 that is when we got excited and we did the um review of the springfield armory m1 carbine bb gun but more importantly we had the great benefit and um privilege if you will to interview a World War II vet named Keith Anderson. Keith Anderson was a pilot. He's part of the 398th Bomb Group. And right around that time, there was a book in the works that was getting ready to come out called um, Flying Fortress, Perry Powell's Crew. Um, And it covered some of the uh, stories of um, Mr. Anderson. And uh, Christoph reached off to me today and... um, And Christoph reached out to me today to share the very sad news that Mr. Keith Anderson has passed away on July 21st of 2020. And I know we got a lot of new listeners and uh, new subscribers to the podcast, and I felt it was only appropriate since Mr. Anderson was so nice to um, join us via the phone and to uh, give us some of his time and share his stories and his experiences during the war with us that um, I would replay that episode for you guys. And so um, I don't want to say this week's episode, but uh, this week's edition of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is simply going to be a replay in memoriam, if you will, going back to episode 55. So you can hear the stories from Mr. Keith Anderson himself. Thank you so much, sir, for your service. Rest easily. Thank you so much, sir, for your service. Rest easy. And enjoy your reuniting with your comrades. Thank you, sir. And thank you, guys. Joining us on the phone, coming up here momentarily, he was a pilot for the 398th Bomber Group in World War II, Mr. Keith Anderson. Mr. Anderson, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. First and foremost, let me thank you for your time, for coming on our show and taking time out of your schedule. I greatly appreciate it. It's uh, gentlemen like you that allow me to share your history with our listening audience and to educate the up-and-coming generations on the 
um, sacrifices and the um, trials and tribulations that your generation went through to uh, make our freedoms possible today. So first and foremost, thank you for your time and thank you for everything you've done for us. You're very welcome. Well, let's go back to the beginning, if you don't mind. Where we tend to start all this, first and foremost, is uh, we'll go back a little bit to Pearl Harbor. Do you remember where you were at during Pearl Harbor? I was uh, a freshman at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And uh, they didn't permit uh, fraternities and sororities at Reed. They had living groups instead. And they were just independent to the college. And uh, I lived in a, a long structure with several what they called houses in them. The building was probably a thousand feet long or more. And it was uh, divided the uh, east end with male living groups, and uh, the other end was female. These houses were about were three stories and each wing of those two wings men and women they were further divided by uh, just partition walls inside of each and there were two or three rooms on each floor well i came in and bound and gagged us all individually in bed into living groups and they call them uh, houses. I lived at the time in what was called Doyle House. Uh, it's a long story, but we'd had a, over the years, some of these houses have uh, accumulated symbols of their house. And our house was, uh, the symbol was an owl. They called it the Doyle House Owl. And uh, one of the, uh, other houses uh, in our wing uh, came in and stole our owl. Then on Sunday evening, we had, uh, it was custom to have an open house where you'd invite all the college to come to your house and chit-chat. Kind of a way to um, encourage new freshmen and, and that to come per possibly join your house? Uh, no, it was just... A, a, a safe social occasion to get to know other members of the other houses that would come and visit you. Sure. It was just a fairly a, a social um, expanding your membership of the, your class. I got you. At any rate, they had stolen our owl. So they were having an open house and it turned out to be the day of Pearl Harbor, which we didn't know was coming, going to be there. We all knew the war was coming. But so they uh, invited us to their open house, which is going to be on Sunday, December 7th, 1941. And uh, so we, we knew that they were going to feature our owl at the, at the um, open house. So we wanted to steal it back before they could show it off. So we uh, assembled a bunch of friends on the campus and, and stormed their house physically, battering our way up to the second floor where, where the owl would be on display. And somebody came and 
said that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. Well, that put an end to our raid on their house right away. Your owl was abducted by the fellow house on campus. They secured it up in the second floor of their home. You guys put together a rescue team. You got some battery rams because, you know, this is your mascot. This represents you, your house, and what you guys are all about. And they they abducted it. And so as far as you guys were concerned, the only thing that mattered at that point in time was the uh, retrieval of your beloved owl. And as you're in the middle of literally taking a ram and barging your way into their, their home, or their house to uh, acquire your stolen property. That's when news came down to you guys that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor, and it's amazing. Right. It's amazing how quickly your priorities change and how much something that you thought was very important that your entire existence relied on it now meant nothing because something far more important uh, just happened. And it just—it's amazing how that changes um, a young person's priority. Well. To an extent, that's true, but you have to realize that Pearl Harbor wasn't a, a total surprise. We'd had the negotiations and all kinds of things with Japan leading up to that time. So while uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor itself was unexpected, an altercation with Japan was not unexpected. Yeah, because part of Japan's deception policy at that point was we were actually getting ready to sit down and kind of not really come up with a peace treaty, but come up with a neutrality treaty saying, hey, you know, you mind your own, we'll mind ours. And they were kind of just playing along to keep us off guard because they knew they were planning this attack. And so, like you said, it really wasn't um, unforeseen that this may happen because we've had issues with the empire, the, the Japanese empire, but they were kind of playing um, a smokescreen tactic by pretending that they were going to sit down and sign this treaty with us, and then they bombed us. Yeah, well, that's true. So the bombing, of course, was, and particularly the Pearl Harbor, uh, was totally unexpected. At any rate, it put an end to, to our raid to recover our owl very soon. And from then on, the inclination is to go down and join the army to fight the Japanese. But uh, uh, and some of the folks did that right away. But uh, most of us, feeling the war was coming on, had already started thinking about how we were going to end up serving our country. Before we move on into your enlistment into the military... Um, just for our listeners' sake, out of the sense of patriotism and solidarity, did the other house relinquish your owl back to you? <laughs> did we ever what? Did they ever give you your owl back to you out of a sense of patriotism and solidarity as a single nation after the bombing? Did they, no, they, did give they, us back our owl. Did they give it back to you? It's been stolen several times since then. It became practically a tradition. I'm just picturing this in a movie sense, and in the movie, I think, to get everybody on the side of everyone, you would have that scene where the, the head of the other house would come down the stairs and say, you know what, it's not worth it, and just hands the hell over to you guys, and then and then you go on to deal with uh, 
enlisting into the Marines or the Army or to the Army Air Corps or what have you. So I just wanted to, to find out if you guys did, in fact, get the owl back. Yeah. Uh, they had their – they ended up having their oil, their open house that night, and I think presented us back. But we didn't get it back from our raid, no. Yeah. At any rate, our individual focus then was stimulated to decide – how you individually were going to participate in the war. And a friend of mine and I, and, uh, of course, the Navy was very active recruiting in the Northwest all along. For some reason, the Navy never did appeal to me. My dad had been in the Army as a truck driver and mechanic, and so I was geared towards serving in the army like my dad had done. And uh, my, most of my focus was on the army. A friend of mine and I, had, neither one of us had done any private flying. I'd built a few model airplanes uh, when I was in school, but I'd never, never dreamed of being a pilot. But so we decided, the two of us, to join the Army Air Force. So we went down to the Portland Army Air Base and enlist in the U.S. Army Air Force. But at that time, of course, the country was going from practically zero military to what was soon to be 13 million or more men. That belong to one of the best services. Yeah, because after World War One, quote unquote, the war to end all wars, we were kind of, you know, basically the Marine Corps was the only real branch that had any sort of funding. That's why they got sent down to the Philippines and to um, land on Guadalcanal. And you're absolutely right, because of the fatigue, if you will, of the American people after World War One, they just we had no desire to participate in any sort of conflict, which is why we. Up until this point, we're pr pretty much only participating in the war through the Lend-Lease program. But we actually, as you said, our, our military was at an all-time low, really, at that point, with the exception of the funding for the Marine Corps. But the Marine Corps was still using rifles and gears that their fathers used in World War One. They were still using 1903 bolt-action rifles. And now here we are. We get sucker-punched, kind of, by the Japanese. And now we realize, okay... Um, participating in the war strictly by lending jeeps and tanks and weaponry and uniforms to the Allies, that's not going to cut it anymore. Now we really need to turn up our engines, if you will, and put together multiple branches of the military to help protect our country and to participate in the overall war. Well, and particularly in the Northwest, which felt more of a kinship towards Hawaii than most of the country did. So... Remember, Pearl Harbor became a real uh, model of traffic's a great following here. At any rate, my partner, my buddy and I, had uh, joined the uh, uh, Air Force after Pearl Harbor as aviation cadets. Why we settled on aviation cadets, I'm not sure, but we did. And... Uh, of course, a massive influx of, of volunteers at that time, and 
the armed services weren't able to cope with all of them, train them all at once. So um, they just put you on a waiting list. And uh, the months rolled by, and we were getting more involved in the war all the time from a military standpoint, and particularly with the Navy, which, you know, close to the Northwest here. The months rolled by and school seemed less relevant studying ancient history than did participating in the war. So we were getting pretty antsy. And then all of a sudden, in February of 42, I got orders from the U.S. Army Air Force to be, and they were addressed not to an aviation cadet, but to private first class, Keith W. Anderson. Well, that was my first kind of a shock with the military, who enlisted uh, to be an aviation cadet. And well, what had happened? I found out with this great influence of, of people joining the Air Force to be pilots or navigators or whatever. They were getting so many fellows in all at once, and they were having a very high washout rate. People that just couldn't learn to fly soon enough and, and well enough. So they devised this program, which they put into play. We, we were the first group that was in an air training program as a private, and, you, and they sent you to college. Uh, there was a five-month college course for aviation cadet training. You made reference to the high washout rate back then um, at the time. Um, just for the edification for our audience, we got to remember back then um, we didn't have the um, vitamins, the proteins, the the health regimen we have now, and the technology to maintain one's vision. Um, and so back then, a lot of people were colorblind. Their vision wasn't as well as it is today. Obviously, we didn't have corrective surgery like we have now. And so um, one of the leading factors, or two leading factors, I would assume, and you could tell me, is one, people's vision. But let's also keep in mind that um, these planes back then, the navigational systems were the top of their time, but compared to nowadays, they're very rudimentary. And correct me if I'm wrong, you guys had to be pretty good with math, especially when it came to navigating and um, using basically to know where you are on the globe when you're in flight, correct? Well, there was a lot to learn uh, in ground school, but just the flying itself, uh, learning to the skills of landing uh, and bad weather, night, uh, a lot of people just couldn't couldn't take the pressure of learning the act of flying itself. So there was the ground school that some of them couldn't cope with and the actual flying. Now, washout came from the flying generally. Now, do you remember the first time you went up in an airplane, the, the feeling you had, the sensation you got, and was there any part of it that made you say, I really want to do this, or was there a part of you said, whoa, I don't know if I can handle this? No, I, I didn't wonder if I could handle it. 
it was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I can sort of remember that first flight, but I didn't come down particularly exhilarated because by then I'd been in, well, let me back up to get that, those uh, college training attachments. Sure. When they first started the program, they, uh, on the basis of testing that they did and on your previous record, they divided you into five groups, one group in which would graduate each month. And, and from then after, all groups would go for five years in the college training detachment. Uh, so I just kind of come out of college and I was passing high grades and all the tests they were giving me. So I was put in the second group. At that time, the Air Force was graduating one class per month or approximately one per month, about 10 or 11 per year. Can you remember off the top of your head how many uh, cadets were in each class that graduated each month? No. Okay. I was just... No, I, I don't. Okay, I was just uh, trying to do the math to try to figure out how long it would take for us to uh, fulfill the need for pilots at that time because obviously we were in a big hurry. However, if we're doing one a month, obviously they had the numbers sorted out so that uh, we could sustain the need that we had for um, our pilots. I was just curious. Okay, they had the Air Command divided into three sections, the Pacific Coast, the Midwest, in the East Coast, and each one of them had their own cadet programs, and they operated separately from each other from an operational standpoint. So at any rate, when I finally got my orders, it came through to private Keith W. Anderson, and rather than go to the Pacific Coast Command, I was assigned to the Midwest Co Command which was headquartered in a Randolph Field in Texas. And uh, I was disappointed, but there wasn't anything I could do about it except go on with the flow. First of all, the idea was you'd get one month of basic military training before you even, even went to five months of college. So my initial assignment was to Buckley Field in Denver, Colorado. So when I first got my first orders, I was a private and I was being sent to Buckley Field in uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, up to that point, I'd been thinking in terms of the Pacific Command, which is centered out of Southern California, and Santa Ana was the focal point for the Pacific Coast Chain Command. I forget which, what the East Coast was. Some air base down in Florida. At any rate, there I was, uh, first in Denver, Colorado, and then sent out to uh, my first college, my college training detachment that I was assigned to was at Southwest Missouri State Teachers College. And I was put in the second 
graduating class. As I said, they had a class of pilots, navigators, bombardiers, for some reason, weather officers, and a few other officer groups. But once you started training, you were going into one specialty to another. After a week in Denver and two months in Missouri, I was sent to Randolph Field in Texas. And that's where they made assignments into the training command. We took a lot of tests, physical tests, mental tests, and so forth. And uh, each day they would come out with a list of who went where. And uh, I was down there about a week, and I hadn't, my name hadn't come up on any list at all. I wouldn't talk to anybody. And all of a sudden there it is on the list, and I'm assigned to class 44B, which would be the second graduating class um, of 1944. By the time my turn came to go to, to start out student aviation routine, they were getting ready to send out class 44A, and all of a sudden, it ended up short of people from 44B, so they had to take some of those fellows and move them into 44A. Well, I'd been just on the borderline between the two. So I ended up actually joining and, and becoming an aviation cadet with a class of 44A. At that time, there were three phases of training for pilots. One was uh, primary flight training, basic flight training, and advanced flight training, about two months each. So that was close to a nine-month process. In primary training, you started out with a single-engine, fixed-wing, fixed-landing gear training plane. A lot of them were the popular Stearman twin wing airplane. A lot of cadets learned to fly in those. And Fairchild PT-19s. PT standing for primary trainer. And 19 was the designation. So I learned to fly basic flying in that landing, taking off aerobatics, precision flying over the ground for navigation training purposes. And that was an intense course, one half a day of flying and one half a day of ground school. And the ground school subjects you were studying were compatible with the flying training you were getting. And it would be night flying navigation and then basic military training in the ground school. And I'm sure as you're doing your in-flight training in your uh, Fairchild PT-19, the brass and those who are in charge of the training are probably assessing which pilots would be best as a uh, fighter pilot, which pilot would be best as a bomber pilot. Well, they were just 
concerned with teaching you their their phase of the training. Now the selection became between say somebody destined to be a fighter pilot and somebody to be was a bomber pilot was when you went from basic to advanced flying training. If you were going to be a fighter pilot, you just continued with a single engine airplane, AT-6, which is still, they're still flying AT-6 all around the country. You got to actually make a decision whether you wanted to go to single engine advanced or multi-engine advanced. Multi-engine, obviously, is two engines on up. Practice to learn how to fly in twin engine airplane. What was the deciding factor for you to go with the dual engine advance as opposed to the single engine advance? What what attracted you to being a to going up in the bombers opposed to the the fighter planes? Well, I didn't know much about fighter planes except I knew about the P thirty eight because they were flying all around the northwest during the first two years of the war. So I was familiar with a P-38, it had twin engines, and I decided I wanted to be a P-38 pilot, so I better go to twin engine. Turned out that was the best way to get into P-38s, but at any rate, that was my thinking at the time. Uh, I didn't know much about airplanes at all. I knew a B-17, actually, they were built in Seattle. Now, I knew the difference between bombers and fighters, but I didn't know the slightest idea of what was involved in the, with each. When my time came, I selected twin-engine advance, and I ended up at Lubbock Field in uh, western Texas. And that's where I actually finally graduated and got my wings in the uh, on January 7th of 1942, um, along with getting your wings, having a ceremony where they pinned them on you and so forth, you got orders to your next position, which was, uh, um, forget what they call it, it was an assignment center. It's where you went out as a brand new Second lieutenant, brand new pilot. The replacement depot? Yeah, replacement depot. Right. First of all, you were given a 30-day leave at home and then sent to a what was called a rec, rest and recuperation center. Where after all of your... The pre, and there was a lot of pressure on during flying training. Uh, you were supposed to be able to get rested and recuperated from that rigorous training. And there you would also get your first assignment for actual tactical training. So uh, I was sent to Salt Lake City, Colorado, which was a replacement kit center for the West Coast. Well, maybe it was for everybody. I, I don't really remember that now. I know there were hundreds of guys that were uh, assigned to Salt Lake City replacement depot and with nothing to do except 
and sit around and play cards and tell stories. Um, I give some rudimentary training. In. At the time, were you a better card player or a storyteller? <laughs> well, I was a pretty good card player. I learned from my, my dad. What was the game of choice at the time? What were you guys playing? Poker. So you were able to hold your own in poker and not lose all your pay? Yeah. Nice. I held my own. There you go. But I had only been there about two weeks. And most of the fellows were there for a month or more. What they would do there at the replacement depot, they would take, like for bombers, a B-17 or a B-24, which had 10-man crews, they'd assemble, they had uh, uh, navigators coming into replacement depot, bombardiers, and gunners. And they would assemble those into combat crews and then train them off, send them off for further training as a crew in a specific airplane they were going to fly. So I'd only been there about a week or two, and another fellow and I, from my graduating class at Lubbock, were called and given orders, just the two of us, to report to the 398th bomb group in Rapid City, South Dakota. So we got a speed up right there. We didn't go through the uh, ordinary process of having uh, months in a tactical airplane we were going to fly. Uh, so basically at this point they're going to streamline your training and you're basically going to get the uh, the fast track and not get the um, the in-depth well, consistent training. The fast track, it was faster than fast track. Because <laughs> we found out that the 398 bomb group had just gotten its orders to join the uh, 8th Air Force in England. They had been serving as a year as a training group, which was training uh, other groups that were heading over, none of them had been overseas themselves, but they were always all experienced people. And so the 398 bomb group uh, had just received in uh, January its orders to join the Air Force in England. Now they weren't fully banned at the time, so they had to bring in a bunch of people like me last minute. And uh, lo and behold, I found out that all of a sudden, uh, a replacement people and any training in a tactical airplane, I was being sent right to a bomb group as, uh, on its way overseas. And uh, quite an acceleration. We were the very last B-17 group assigned at the 8th Air Force. Now, at that time, the last year of the war, there were 30 bomb groups in the 8th Air Force. I may, may have been 32. I think there were 32. Divided into three divisions. The first, the second, and the third division. The first division uh, was B-17 groups only. 
The second division was B-24 groups, and the third division was a mixture of both of them. Had you had any experience on the B-24, or did you strictly work and train with the B-17s? I never had been into a B-24 until after the war. And I I was happy I was in a B-17 group for many reasons thereafter. But uh, at any rate, here I graduated on January 7th. In February, I was always, always already assigned to a bomb group as a, uh, on its way overseas. And I was very lucky when, once I got there. When I was there, I was assigned immediately to a crew, an existing crew. And it turned out to be the leading pilot and the lead crew of the whole group. So from the beginning of the joint, when I joined that group, I was in very select company. My pilot at that time was only a second lieutenant still, but he had over a thousand hours of B-17 time and a lot of hours prior to that as a civilian. He was also 25 years old, which is as old as you could be to start out flight training at that time. And I was 17. But uh, he had a world of experience, and uh, so I came right under his tutelage, and uh, I was a very lucky guy uh, in my career from then on. Now, correct me if uh, I'm wrong, but you were one of the youngest guys in your group, were you not? Yes, I was. My birthday was in March, so we actually flew overseas in Late March, 43. At any rate, one day at Rapid City, there were some brand new, right up the line, B-17 sitting there <clears throat> waiting for us. Each crew was assigned an airplane of its own. And immediately we went and painted ours up and named it and so forth. Do you remember what you guys named it? Yeah, they named it. Any anytime, Annie. After the girlfriend is some guy, some one of the gunners on the crew, and uh, the interesting thing is that we flew those airplanes over to England, and uh, two days later they were all gone, and we had brand new airplanes. Just use this to fly them overseas. Because they still had to go through a, a modification center in England uh, to get up to snuff for combat. I understand at that time uh, the manufacturers would every now and again completely revamp their airplane, so and with a, what they call a new model, and we had the brand new model G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G model of the B-17. And, but even then, in combat, things progress so rapidly, they have to make changes uh, 
they decided they were going to change, make a modification to the airplane right away. They had modification centers right in England where they would send the airplane um, and get it prepared for combat. So they took our brand new Anytime Annie away from us and uh, it went to modification center and eventually was assigned the group. And I read later that it was shot down uh, about its fourth or fifth mission before the North Sea. <laughs> so anytime Annie didn't last too long. Um, from then on, we can bother naming our airplanes. We also found out that as a lead crew, you flew special airplanes. For one thing, they were equipped with radar. All the airplanes weren't equipped with radar at that time. Uh, and they had special bomb sites and special this and that. So uh, uh, each airplane, each group had six or seven lead airplanes, and then the lead crews would fluctuate flying those lead airplanes. Now I understand you quickly learned there was a disadvantage almost to being a co-pilot in the lead airplane, and when that happened, um, an NCO or a um, member higher up would oftentimes take your seat and you were relegated to being a, a uh, observer to the tail gunner, is that correct? Well, yeah. I soon found out, and I wasn't very happy about it, that the uh, co-pilot on the lead crew was replaced by generally a senior officer. Our group commander was a full colonel, and he flew several missions with us, with him sitting in the co-pilot seat, me flying as a tail gunner. And I wasn't very happy about being killed as a tail gunner after I'd been spent all that time learning how to fly. You just went from seeing what's going on to watching what just happened out the back and staring at the faces of the gentleman flying behind you. Now, yeah, it, it was a good place to be because I later on I saw a lot of airplanes blow up. And the tail used to come off intact and flutter down on its own and often and you see one, one figure jump out of there and open a chute, and uh, no chutes coming out of the main section of the airplane. So from that aspect, you know, the tail gunner was, was favorable. From a logistical standpoint, was the escape hatch closer to the tail or to the uh, cockpit of the plane? You could get to the, it the quicker. The escape hatch for the tail gunner was its own escape hatch right next to the tail gunner. So he could get out of there in a hurry. It was just very easy to just kick the hatch open and jump. Were there any times during the war that, that you had to evacuate your plane or your plane didn't make it home from a mission? We had an engine catch fire uh, on, as we were climbing to altitude. And the engines had a built-in fire extinguisher system, but we actuated that, and it didn't work, and it kept burning. And we decided it was going to 
plane was going to blow up any minute. You better get the hell out of there. So we, we all jumped. And, uh, I remember I, I was supposed to be, I was a tail gunner on that mission. So I went out the tail with the three other gunners. We all jumped together and we could talk to each other all the way, all the way down. And uh, we did. And all of a sudden, we hit the ground. And I remember that landed a lot harder than I thought it would be. I was trying to judge when I was going to hit the ground. Now, when you're in a situation like that, is jumping probably not even a concern at that point? I guess you, you, in the forefront of your mind, you're thinking, okay, this plane's going down. Either I stay here and probably die, or I jump out of the plane and most likely survive. But I guess it happened so quickly, you probably don't really get a chance to register the idea before you even jump out that plane. It's just probably instinct at that point, fight or flight. Well, I was never afraid of having to bail out. I always figured the shoe would open, and uh, from then on it would be unknown, but so was, by then you're so used to having, getting shot at or getting killed in multiple ways, that you're not too selective. So I was, I didn't have any hesitancy about getting out of that airplane. Now, when you landed, did you have the luxury of landing over friendly territory, or did you go down over enemy territory, or was it neutral? No, we knew we were over friendly territory. We we knew we were still over England, and uh, so that was not a concern. So once you and your, your two gunners landed, and you basically, I guess the first thing you have to figure out where you're at, obviously you knew you are in England, but not sure where at, how do you go about uh, getting back home? You just find the, the nearest village and send out communication, or or what's the process of the uh, recovery for that? Well, we all saw each other land, or we were close enough, so we got together right away. And I just we were in somebody's ended up in somebody's yard, so I knocked on their door, told them what we were, who we were, what we were doing. They said, well, there's an RAF pilot lives down the street. Why don't you go see him? So I did that. I went down there. and He was having breakfast. So he says, uh, says uh, if you wait for me to finish breakfast, I'll drive to my field. Well, he said, okay. Turns out he was a test pilot, and I forget the name of the field now. But it was their equivalent of right field in this country. He took us to the field and I phoned our base to tell them where we were. And they said they'd send an airplane down to pick us up, which they ultimately did. And now, how many times? When I'm there, I see these airplanes taxiing by with no propeller. And uh, a lot of heat waves coming out the rear. Well, I've never even heard of a jet airplane. 
by then. Never even heard of them that I remember. So they were the first English jet. And I forget the sequence of events by then. But by then we knew that the Germans had a jet airplane, whatever that was. And uh, we should see them occasionally. And here was the British answer to the German jet, but they were way far behind. It was the Gloucester Meteor, I believe, was the first British jet. It was. It was, it was the Gloucester Meteor. was the... Uh, how, what was your impression when you heard that thing take off? Because clearly the the audible output of a jet engine is far, far superior than that of a prop plane. I mean, just the, the noise as things put off. What was your first impression when you when you saw that thing taxiing out on the runway? Well, it didn't make a lot of noise taxiing. And they took so long to take off that they were practically out of sight down the into the runway by the time they got off the ground you couldn't hear them anymore so i didn't have any pressure at all oh, i got you now during the war how many times did your um, aircraft or how many aircrafts did you lose due to mechanical failure well that was the only time i had to bail out of an airplane it was the only time i remember not being able to take off now, I understand you flew about seven missions or so as a tail gunner. In that time, did you ever have to engage the enemy with your uh, your machine gun? No, I never I never had to actually fire that machine gun. I did fire it at airplanes so far away that I could barely see them just so I could say I'd shot at a German airplane. <laughs> but, uh, sure. No. I... Uh, I didn't have any occasions other than that. Um, and you're right, I did end up flying seven or eight missions as a tail gun. I forget now just how many, but uh, I, I flew my most biggest missions as a tail gun. Now, another thing I should explain, when we first got over there, uh, then the uh, Eighth Air Force had developed its tactics pretty well. And they'd finally settled on 36 airplane group as an ideal bomb group. 36 airplanes in a formation. Yeah, I believe um, in a past interview you said you guys had 12 ships to a squadron and three squads to a group. We flew with four squadrons. Yeah. Uh, an echelon of three airplanes or, and, and one tail. You had a lead plane, right wing, left wing, and tail. That would be a four-plane unit. And with the 12 group formations, we would fly four of those. Uh, pretty much after G-Day. Now, speaking of D-Day, I understand that uh, right on Operation Overlord, that the uh, 600th bomb group participated in um, bombing and attacking coastal defenses of the enemies on uh, the Cherisburg Peninsula. Did you participate in that during D-Day? We were bombing the beach. We carried 100-pound bombs that day, and they were designed not to blow up things as 
much as to create foxholes for sure. the infantry to have something to jump into. Yeah, that's what a lot of people don't realize. Part of the strategic planning for the D-Day invasion was to have you guys lay bombs onto the beach to create craters, as you just said, to allow the gentlemen to get below the surface line to, to get take cover from the enemy machine gun fire. That was our function of our group. Now, different groups had different functions. Sure. That, now, D-Day, we flew just six ship formations. That, that was the only day. Time I ever flew the six ship bombing mission. Um, was the flak fire real bad on that day, or were they pretty much caught off guard? There was, I did see a burst of flak in the sky that day. We were concentrating on any heavy enough artillery they had available, was concentrated on the shooting of our fleet, our invasion fleet. We were just a nuisance as far as they were concerned. Now, sp- now, speaking of flak, the first time you experienced flak, is it, so what can you compare it to? I mean, probably very little. I mean, is it like, obviously you have shrapnel penetrating your plane, but when those bursts go off, do they create blast waves that create turbulence, or is it just simply the, the shrapnel penetrating your plane? An 88 shell uh, would blow a plane apart. They had 88, 90, and 155, I think. So even an 88 shell would, could do more than just create the fragments, the shell fragments. It would just blow a whole airplane apart or blow the nose off, blow the whole airplane up. Flak did a lot of different things. But luckily, for the grace of God, during D-Day and during your mission to provide foxholes for the uh, upcoming landing invasion, luckily you guys didn't have to deal with flak. Was For you on that day, was it pretty much a straightforward mission, or did you guys have any issues that you had to overcome? No, it was a pretty much of a straightforward mission. We didn't even get shot at. I don't think we saw a burst of flak in the air even. Those are the um, missions that you mark down as the, the best ones to go on, obviously, because uh, you get out there, you do what you're uh, told to do, and everybody gets home safe, and you uh, get to fly in a, another day. Yeah. In fact, originally, we were going to fly two missions on D-Day. For some reason, they call off the second one. So we just came home and turned on the radios and listened to how the invasion was going. Now I understand prior we're gonna we're gonna back up a little bit. I I understand prior to the D-Day invasions, one of your all's first missions was to drop bombs on uh, the manufacturing plants of the V1 flying bombs that the Germans were creating. But um, that mission didn't really go as planned, correct? I'll back up a little bit. Sure. Our very first mission that we flew was uh, May sixth, nineteen forty-two, and. Uh, it was to bomb a buzz bomb facility on the French coast. When we first got there, we didn't know anything at all about buzz bomb. Now, we didn't even drop our bombs at that one. Our second mission was to Berlin. And uh, uh, that turned out to be not much of anything either for us. Berlin was one of the toughest targets there in Germany, but a lot, a lot of the war was just 
the luck of the draw. Uh, let me explain one one thing. We prided ourselves on flying good tight formations, figuring that the Germans, well, I'm sure it was true, they would rather fly through a loose formation that was where the airplanes were all close together and had a lot of machine guns. You realize there were 13 or 14 50 caliber machine guns on the B-17. It was just brutal with armament. So they could send up a lot of shell. When you had the airplanes flying close together, it just made a more concentrated area of uh, machine gun bullets. The Germans had to fly through to get to us, and we were all spread apart. Well, it always amazed me how well your gunners did um, flying in these tight formations, and especially when you know under attack by the Germans and the Messerschmitts, how well they did um, not hitting friendly, you know, their other comrades, the other planes. I mean, you guys are in close formations; they're trying to. Um, lead the target, if you will, as the enemy planes flying, and but they also got to be mindful of the fact that there's so many other B-17s around them. It always amazed me how well they did it, not, you know, accidentally shooting one another and taking friendly fire. Oh, still amazes me, yeah. Yeah, we used to think the same thing, but uh, that was another story. I don't know of any instances we had where we not one of our airplanes has been shot down by another airplane in the formation. Yeah, it's remarkable. Would you say that your flight over Berlin was one of your toughest assignments, or was there another one that stands out in your mind as being one of the hardest um, assignments you had to complete? Well, I went there three times. I don't remember the first two specifically, except we didn't get shot at it. Our airplane wasn't shot that much. But the third one was my third from last. And that in itself was significant because I didn't have too many more to survive to get home. So I said, boy, I sure don't want to get shot down over Berlin. And three of the lead planes in groups ahead of us got shot down. And I... I was mindful of that when we went over, but uh, fortunately, we got through that unscathed also. Did your group participate in the support during Operation Market Garden? Yeah, we did, and I I did too. Uh, What was your key role on that day? What was the main target? Were you guys going after gun emplacements? Were you uh, bombing... um manufacturing plants? What was the key role for your uh, providing support during Market Garden? Well, I don't I don't remember specifically what we were I, I think we were just bombing troops or groups of trucks or power stations, yeah. railroad bridges, and basically anything that would help uh, interrupt the logistics yeah. of the German army. Right. Mainly we were after trying to kill German troops as I remember, but you had the lead airplane. You had the pilot of the lead airplane. Now, a lead airplane flew mostly 
on autopilot. You just turned on the autopilot when you took off mm -hmm. and kept it tuned in from the, the rest of the mission. So it wasn't particularly fatiguing to sit there and dial, twist knobs instead of fighting those big controls. So you didn't have to have a co-pilot spill off with. That's why the, the mission commander would sit in the co-pilot seat because he had, didn't have to fly at all. Just sit there on the radio and command. So in September, our squadron commander got promoted. So my pilot, Gene Douglas, became squadron operations officer. And I ended up with the crew commander. Actually, at the same time, by then we'd gotten a lot of replacement crews in and replacement crews, you have an experienced pilot fly with them uh, for their first two missions. So by September, I was doing mostly that. And a few times they sent me along as the squadron command pilot. Now, you had your lead squadron with a group commander and the lead pilot of the mission and the group navigator or the group bombardier or the representative. And then the East Squadron had its, the high and the low had its uh, commanders. So I was doing a few, a little bit of each. I was flying the new crews on our first two missions. I flew with about six or seven new crews on their first two missions. I flew a couple times with our old crew and my pilots was the squadron commander. So I did quite a bit of that. And then uh, September, October, November, things settled down. November, my pilot was leading our group on a mission. He got shot down and uh, he came and the navigator with him. And they both were survived and became POWs. We were at the same camp together. And about that time, I, I became, I was promoted uh, to uh, becoming a flight commander. That was just a, it wasn't a rank. It was just a, from then on, I, I only flew on lead airplanes either as a pilot or as a squadron command pilot. Sure. I flew several missions as a squadron command pilot through December. January, on January 23rd, our uh, Colonel, Colonel Hunnell shot down and killed in, uh, and we, we had a couple of good capable squadron commanders. Instead of uh, turning the group over to one of them, they brought in a guy from staff, a Lieutenant Colonel Ensign was his name, and uh, he'd flown a couple of missions with us earlier. 
This is sort of a tag along. First thing he did was when he took over from Colonel Hunter. And all we didn't worship Colonel Hunter, but all of us really liked him. Uh, we felt he was a good, good commanding officer. And this guy sort of ragged him. And pretty soon everybody hated him. Lieutenant Colonel Hanson. But about that time, after December, few of us that had been with the group for a long time, at least had been overseas, started thinking ahead to the time the war would be over and we would go to Japan. So we decided we wanted to stick together. And uh, during January, there were a few of us flew in at all. By that time, you were uh, in that squadron where you were determining when, when you flew or not. You pointed yourself as either the lead pilot or the command pilot. So if you didn't appoint yourself, you didn't have to go. And uh, when Colonel Hunter got killed uh, and replaced by Anson, all of that changed. We wanted to get the hell out of there just as soon as we could. At that time, the the flight mission quota was 34, correct? You guys had to fly a minimum of 34 before you were were considered to uh, head home, correct? No, it was 35. When we first got over there, it was 30. And then they prorated it so that if you'd had a few missions when they upped them, you didn't have to fly the full 35. And uh, I had flown six missions by the time they did that. So I had to fly 34. My, my uh, number was 34. And then if you flew during your career, once you flew 10 lead missions, lead crews had a higher attrition rate, you got credit for five. So that's how I ended up with 34. And then five less for more than 10 missions, so I had to fly 29. As you got to counting down your missions, that when you got closer to the end, when you got closer to, to number 29 because of the fact that you had flown so many lead missions, did that affect your nerves at all, or did it make it harder, or was it just, you know, kind of like, hey, that's one less mission, let's get this over with and go home, or was there any superstition that kind of kicked in saying, you know, my number's going to come up the closer I get to hitting my quota? No, but I remember our squadron commander was a West Pointer, good friend of mine. By then, after Douglas got shot down, he became squadron commander. And uh, so it ended up that we were going to fly our last mission together. And I remember calling him aside and saying, listen, we, we've flown 29 or how many up to this date. Let's not get just shot down on this last mission. Let's make sure we get home. <laughs> so let's just keep that in mind. So that's the time I actually thought the whole way, this is my last one. If I can make it, I'm through. So yes, that did finally come to pass. Now, during your time in England, I know um, a lot of the um, officers from the Army and other branches of the military, they would oftentimes get almost like an adopted uh, family to live with so that uh, during the downtime they didn't have to spend so much time you know, in the bivouac or in a tent. They were able to um, retire to a, um, a home or something a little more accommodating than a, um, 
a Cornish hut or a uh, during your time in England were you assigned to an adoptive family or did you spend most of your uh, living your spare time living on base? Yeah, I I never heard of that adoptive family. I don't think any of our people did that. I think they all had their own lived in a Quonset hut. Sure. There. Uh, all the fellows that I can think of lived in Quonset huts. Where was one of your favorite places to visit when you had a little R&R and you got to uh, step away from the base for a little while? Is there a particular place in your mind you can remember going to on uh, some of your downtime? We went to London immediately. Down at Piccadilly Circus? <laughs> Where all the action was. Yeah. Do some hunting while you're over there? We've gone to Scotland to go hunting on our rest and recuperation week. Halfway through our missions, and uh, but they had a, wed- a wedding schedule for about the second or third day we were there, so we were uh, we had to leave that hotel. We we're trying to find another one, but by then, it's a long story. That trip to Scotland in itself, uh, we worked through a travel agent there, and he said, "I'll." help you fellas out all I can with things to do up here. They said, there's a young lady that I just hired as a guide, and if you will let, let her guide us, guide you on a mission, or guide her on a trip, you on a trip, sign you to her. So she, she did it, and uh, she was a delightful gal, and uh, she lived there in town in Aberdeen, with her parents, who was a retired engineer from South Africa. So they had an extra bedroom. So Harry and I, they were kind enough to invite us to use their extra bedroom for the rest of our trip, which we did. That's another story. What game were you hunting when you are up in Scotland? You guys going for deer, pheasant? Quail? What were you? What were you guys hunting for? Just anything? Well, we what they mainly went for was grouse up there. They would have these big hunting parties with about twenty or thirty people with shotguns, beaters, and they would beat through the bush and flush out these grouse, and they would shoot the grouse. Well, we didn't have any of that. We were we were there about a month before hunting season, so uh, they just let us go out and shoot pigeons <laughs> on my property. Probably not the same uh, <laughs> level of delicacy between that and the grouse. Yeah, right. But at that point in the war, it was probably still uh, pretty di- a pretty uh, damn good eating compared to uh, you know what you're probably eating back at the uh, base all the time. Oh, well, we ate fairly well back at the base. I, I never complained about the food there. Now, during your time during the war and, and flying over Europe and Berlin, and what, did you have anyone back at home waiting on you that you wrote letters to? Did you have a sweetheart back home, or did that come later on after the war? Oh, I had a sweetheart. Did that make, you, said, did that make it easier to write, pass your... Write a letter almost every day. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask, if it made it easier to, um, to spend your, ta- your downtime writing letters home to help you kind of decompress and to... Um, process everything you went through, but obviously you probably kept a lot of that to yourself so that you didn't worry the person you're writing to, I would assume. Yeah, well, I used to write to my folks 
just keep them from worrying. You know, you know not, that wouldn't keep them from worrying, but help them out a little bit. Sure. Now, I know, as we said before, you had a, um, a quota of how many flights you had to get in. And I know your last mission was on uh, February 23rd. Do you remember that mission and, and uh, what was going through your mind? I know you, you spoke a little bit earlier about uh, talking to friend yours about making sure you guys didn't get shot down. Did that mission feel longer than it actually was or longer than any of the previous missions because you knew it was your last? No, although it was scheduled to be a longer one than it was. It was scheduled to go into Pilsen, Czechoslovakia, which is right at the tip of that bulb of Czechoslovakia that went into Germany. And uh, by the time we got halfway there, they called off the mission. I forget why, maybe whether it was too bad or whatever. So we actually were going to pull the bomb up target of opportunity. And uh, so I called up the navigator and I said, okay, we can find a uh, that day we were bombing railroad stations all on all our targets I knew about. So I said, let's find a town in Germany on the way back. Find a town that's got a, at least two, two railroad lines intersecting in it. We'll call it a marshalling yard and that'll be our target opportunity. So we picked a town called Kitzingen, Germany. And uh, we bombed that. And there, there were a couple of real lives there, and we bombed it. And had a beautiful pattern, beautiful strike. And uh, as far as I know, the only time Kitzingen was bombed during the war, we got home and it was just very uneventful. So you just completed your last mission. You met your quota. Did you get sent home right away, or was it more of the standard hurry up and wait that the uh, Army's known for? You know, how long were you still in Europe before you finally got to go home after you reached your quota? My last one, I think it was on uh, February 23rd. And I wasn't anxious to get home right away because I wanted the weather to get a little better. And by then, like I said, our squadron commander, the West Pointer, was his last mission too, and he was leaving, and I was leaving, and uh, so I said, I'll just stay over for a month or so and uh, let him go home, and, and I'll help out the new guy. By then, they'd gotten in a replacement. And uh, so I voluntarily stayed on for another month after I'd finished my tour. So after that month was up and you finally were heading home, did things seem a lot different back in the States when you got there than, than when you left? Obviously, the, the economy was better. Did you feel like the people themselves, the, the, the feeling, the apprehension, or just daily life, what, what was the feeling like when you came home after being gone for so long? Well, you see, by the time I got home, it was the very first part of March, and the rumors we're all in when the war was going to be over, what day it was going to be. So that was the main thing going on then nationally. When, I forget when the war ended. I believe it was March of 45, if I remember correctly. 
March 45. Oh, okay. It ended probably while I was. No, I, I apologize. I was September of 45. The uh, Japanese uh, delegation formally signed the um, peace treaty on September 2nd, 1945. Yeah. And so after you got home, the war is over. How does one pick up their life? I mean, here you were, you were in college, you're on a mission to obtain your abducted owl, your beloved mascot, then Pearl Harbor happened, and then your life completely changed. You went from being a, a college student, a young, a young, you know, young man, to uh, returning home. Instead of, you know, you left a, a teenager, now you returned home a man, but you were gone for a few years. How does one just come home and pick up their life after experiencing that? Well, personally... I thought then that we were going to end up in war with Russia. I was convinced of that for a long time. If Patton had his way, you guys would have been. Well, I joined the Air Force Reserve and kept flying out of McCord Field. And I, I always felt that sooner or later I'd get called up again to go fight the Russians. But instead, that never happened. We, you know, obviously we went into the Cold War. How long did you stay part of the reserves, and what did you do in the reserves? Well, I went on summer two-week duty, where you'd actually go back in for two weeks, get paid and everything. What were you doing in your civilian life when you weren't reporting to the base to put in your two weeks to meet the requirements of the uh, Air Force Reserve? By then, I got into the insurance brokerage business, and uh, along came the Korean War, and they started calling up a lot of us. And I was thinking of the possibility of uh, just voluntarily coming back in. But along the way, a friend of mine and I, in college after the war, had gone into the FBI. And uh, he was home on, he was home one day, and I went and, and had lunch with him. And he really liked the FBI, been in Detroit, uh, his first field office. And he was being, and he'd offered to pay his own way to Anchorage, Alaska. They have a field office up there. And uh, he offered to pay his own way to get transferred up there. So he was moving up to Alaska at the time. When he described the Bureau, I thought I might be interested in that, and I looked into it more and more. And finally, it up, actually during the Korean War, when I did go into the FBI and got out of the insurance business and stayed with the Bureau for two years till I ended up in New York City, and got married. And How old were you when you got out of the FBI and you started to settle down a little bit and met your wife? I was 38 when I got married. So you're you're pretty much well established. You 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 know you spent time in the war. Um, you joined the FBI and did the insurance thing. What did what did you do after the FBI? I was fortunate enough that I was well connected in the insurance business, so I. I went to you know, finished the university and got a, two degrees in engineering, mechanical engineering and um, industrial engineering. And that led into uh, working for the Rating Bureau and 
and all that sort of thing. So at any rate, once I decided to leave the FBI, I wrote this insurance brokerage in Seattle and told them I was coming home. Would they be interested in hiring me? Well, they were. So I came in. I was resigned from the bureau, came to work for Lebeau Hayes was the name of the brokerage firm, and was for them for the rest of my career. Well, Mr. Anderson, I definitely appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your story with us. And um, thank you for everything you did. And um, I just can't express my sense of gratitude for you taking time out of your day and sitting down and, uh, and talking with me for an hour or so. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I got it. I noticed one of the things to talk about when it comes to World War II. Enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much, Mr. Anderson. You're very welcome. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>